Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Brian Hales, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? Good, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Good. I'm glad to have you back on the podcast, and uh, it's good to talk to you. Uh, You and I have been talking for a little bit about uh, having a discussion about some of the accusations that were made about the prophet Joseph Smith prior to the the Nauvoo area uh, the Nauvoo era specifically with uh, issues of of sexual impropriety um, possible early polygamy cases that are not well documented and to kind of just hit on each of these these accusations and to see if there's any kind of uh, any kind of substance to to what's being essentially reported on the prophet Joseph Smith. And I want to start off, first off, Brian, if you would share maybe just briefly a little bit about yourself. I know people have heard you plenty of times on on not just this podcast, but other podcasts as well, and, and are probably familiar with your books. But if you would maybe just share a little bit about yourself and, and the, the wonderful uh, book that you've uh, written, the volume set on Joseph Smith's polygamy. Um, thanks, Bill. Yeah, I became interested in plural marriage back in uh, 1989 when a member of my family was excommunicated for joining a polygamy group. And I researched the Mormon fundamentalist claims, was never impressed, particularly with their claims to authority. But I wrote a book in 1992 on fundamentalist polygamy and then later returned to it in 2006 and 2008 with a couple of more books on that topic. But half the questions people would ask had to do with Joseph Smith, and I didn't know the answer. So in about 2006, seven, I jumped back into researching and hired Don Bradley, an incredible researcher, and he uh, found every known article article, every no manuscript document dealing with this topic and was able to, I hired him for a couple of years to do that. And we were able to, to uh, bring all that together. And then I wrote three volumes called Joseph Smith's Polygamy, History and Theology, which was published uh, last year, a year and a half ago by Greg Coford Books. And it has, uh, since uh, we, we went out of print on the volume one, but I'll just plug that they are back in stock. Uh, there's not a lot of them they reprinted, uh, but they are available now if people are interested. So that's kind of the quick, the quick view there, Bill. I appreciate that. So before I start off throwing out some of these uh, these early accusations uh, against the Prophet Joseph Smith, I want to I want to ask you kind of a question to set it up, which is this topic I think is difficult for a lot of people, and and here's why because it's issues of of sexual impropriety and having a discussion about those kinds of things. As we present these uh, these different examples of uh, of possible times that uh, that people have accused the Prophet Joseph Smith of acting inappropriately, because it's of a sexual nature, and because even if we were to show the facts that these things don't quite line up 
or that there's not enough evidence to make any kind of strong belief that that something funny was going on or something wrong occurred or some inappropriate behavior happened. Just the fact that there are these these nine or so uh, accusations, just sometimes in and of themselves, I guess what I'm saying is sometimes in and of itself, just throwing out enough things against the wall, even if nothing sticks, sometimes can be bothersome to people. Do you have any thoughts on that, Brian, as, you, as you've dealt with this subject and obviously had to put on uh, the scholar way of seeing things, that kind of hat. Have you had a hard time just dealing with this stuff in the sense that there's just so much of it that sometimes just the fact that there's so many accusations and things going on that it can be overwhelming? Um, well, and I think that's the tactic of the opposition here. Joseph Smith was a religious fig- figure that gained a, gained a great deal of prominence. And so the members of other religions, Christian religions, they knew Joseph was a fraud, and so they felt that they were doing their parishioners, their followers, a favor by showing that Joseph was a fraud. And if they kind of fudged on this fact, and if they made up a little bit of evidence over here to show that, the ends, I think, in their minds, justified the means. And so the accuracy is, is where we really need to focus on all of these. But the fact that Joseph had, and actually there's far more than that that I've accumulated of accusations, the ones that we're going to talk about are accusations that provide enough details for us to examine to show whether or not these things ha- are accurate. But Joseph was was accused of all kinds of crazy things. And if you purchase my books or get them at the library, you'll find an entire appendix where I've got about 100 people saying negative things about Joseph, the Mormons and polygamy, um, because that was what they felt was helping. Uh, most of them or many of them were were preachers who wanted to help their flocks not be beguiled by the Mormons. And so the, the, the pure number of them doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, it happens in politics. It happens uh, in philanthropies or, or individuals who have a great deal of money. And, and it's not philanthropies, but, but individuals who, who are very successful and, and therefore they will create enemies. And those enemies are very happy to say bad things about them. Uh, it's also if you were to go to the National Republican Committee and ask them uh, to give a, a, an evaluation of President Obama, well, what do you think we'd hear? Or if we went to the Democrats and asked about President Bush, you, you would get quite a long list of all of their weaknesses and faults, and, and the list would be highly biased. You'd want to investigate anyone that you were going to believe uh, to make sure that it was indeed accurate and not a misrepresentation. And, and Bill, let me give an example, if you don't mind. Uh, what's happening here with these allegations, I think, can be illustrated by a story. Imagine, if you will, a person, a woman who is asleep in a room and it's two o'clock in the morning and a man walks into that room and he's wearing a mask. We can't see his face. So we, we don't know who he is. And he grabs a knife and he plunges the knife into the woman's abdomen. And a, a while later, she bleeds to death. Now, that's the story. And, and aren't you um, willing with me to to probably think that the man with the knife uh, is guilty of murder? <clears throat> the problem with this story is I didn't give you all of the facts. As it turns out, the woman is, is not just asleep. She's anesthetized. It's an operating room. The man in the mask is a, is a trauma surgeon who has trying to save this woman's life because she's had a lot of abdominal trauma, but he's not able to do so. But the knife was a was a scalpel and it wasn't necessarily plunged into her belly. It was it was a surgical incision. But you see how by not withholding certain 
um, points of, of evidence, of facts about the case, we, we've totally twisted it into a negative when, in fact, the man in the mask was trying to save her life. And notice also that instead of calling the the uh, incision, uh, you know, a surgical incision, I said she plunged it into the belly. So I biased you to to saying this man is, is doing something that is problematic and and it, it sounds like he's trying to kill her. So the way the facts are presented is just about everything. And then if you take the willingness of these people to interject falsehoods or half-truths or misrepresentations, it, you're, you're going to have a lot of people saying negative things. Now, regarding the nine things, and actually I think I have accumulated 11 that we can talk about, but, but this number uh, that we're going to talk about, what's really important to notice is that of these, only two of them were, were issued during Joseph's lifetime. And what you find is that these these people, you could call them anti-Mormons, antagonists, unbelievers, but they are highly motivated to discredit Joseph. So and this is decades later. So they they take and they look they look at the historical record. They scour it for any possible thing that they can use against Joseph. And then they create this story about him that was not present at the time that it occurred, but has grown up to be an accusation. Of, of impropriety against Joseph that, again, the people who lived in his time would not have been aware of. So there's already some real weaknesses with all but two of these accusations. And we'll talk about those two as well. Sorry about the long press, awesome. Bill. No, no, that's good. I, I really appreciate that because what I'm trying to get across to the listener is that sometimes just listening to a bunch of accusations being thrown out can be uncomfortable in and of itself. And I want people to be aware that as we go through this podcast and as we talk about each of these accusations, as we go through each one, you simply have to take them one by one, look at them on their own merit, and and realize that if that if someone is being accused of something and they're being accused of multiple things, if there's no truth to it or there's not enough evidence there to to even lean that direction, then it really at the end it shouldn't bother us. We should be able to let it go and not let it be an issue. But unfortunately, as you point out, critics thrive on this making us as Latter-day Saints uncomfortable by throwing as much at the wall as possible, even if none of it sticks. And so let's, with that, let's talk about each of these. Um, And I want to go through, we'll go through the first eight that I have. We'll talk about the other two that you've added to the list. And then we'll finish talking about the most well-known case, which is Fanny Elger, uh, which which I think is a different circumstance than the rest of them. But the first one I have listed here, Brian, is uh, is Eliza Winters. And so I wonder if you might briefly tell us a little bit about her story. And, uh, and then at that point, we'll see if I've got a question or two, but we'll try to go through it and find out why this doesn't really hold up. Great. Yeah, Eliza Winters is, is an accusation against Joseph that if, if people would spend any time uh, from a scholarly you, in a scholarly inquiry, they really would drop this when it really should just go away in the interest of good scholarship. But what happened was uh, a guy named Levi Lewis, who was a cousin of Emma Smith, Joseph's wife, um, made an affidavit out in and we're not sure exactly uh, what it said, because the the periodical that printed it in the 18 late 1820s has has not uh, been found. There's no copies ex- ex- in existence. But a guy named uh, Eber Howe, E.D. Howe, um, took his affidavit and reprinted it in an, in an 1834 publication, probably the first anti-Mormon publication ever printed, um, called Mormonism Unveiled. 
It's, it's back on page 268. It comprises a single paragraph. And here's what it says. Levi Lewis states that he has been acquainted with Joseph Smith and Martin Harris and that he has heard them both say adultery was no crime. Harris said he did not blame Smith for his Smith attempt to seduce Eliza Winters. Mr. Lewis says he knows Mr. Smith to be a liar. With regard to the golden plates, Smith said God had deceived him, which is the reason he, Smith, did not show them. And I've cut a little bit out of the middle. But the uh, this is the only uh, accusation that ties Joseph and, and Eliza Winters together. Um, the, the reason that's problematic is, first, he, he quotes them both as saying adultery was no crime. And we can demonstrate multiple documents from the period saying exactly the opposite. And then his last sentence saying that God deceived him and that's why he didn't show the plates. We have three witnesses and eight witnesses who all said they saw the plates. So Levi Lewis was not very close to what was going on. And yet he claimed that Joseph Smith, um, well, and it's not a firsthand account. Martin Harris is supposed to have said Joseph tried to seduce Eliza. And so he's, this is actually a third-hand account. And some authors like George D. Smith and Dan Vogel actually have, have said that it was um, Levi Lewis who made the accusation, but that's not accurate. Um, and, and in fact, this is a, a third-hand account that's very problematic. The reason it's, it's also a problem is that Eliza Winters was accused of having a bastard child in 1833 by Martin Harris, and she became very upset and sued Martin Harris. But in all of the exchanges, there is no mention of anybody of Joseph Smith trying to seduce her. In addition, uh, when Eliza Winters was much older, and I believe it was 1878, uh, she was interviewed uh, for the newspaper to try to remember any dirt they could think of on the Mormons and Joseph Smith. And in that interview, she actually said some negative things about Joseph, but didn't say anything about him trying to seduce her. And and so there's just all kinds of problems with this accusation regarding Eliza. And and unless they can come up with something better, it, it's it's some it's something that probably would be best to go away. Nobody repeated this accusation, and it's the only one that was published prior to 1842. In other words, from the Joseph Smith's birth until 1842, this one paragraph with a single statement is the only. Uh, accusation accusing Joseph of any kind of a sexual impropriety uh, that anybody has has been able to find, including me and, and Don Bradley, who helped me with my research. Gotcha. Does does Eliza at any point in her life say anything or have an opportunity to say anything? Well, as I said, she had a chance in 1833 and again, and I think it was 1878, uh, chances to, to criticize Joseph and say, yeah, he tried to seduce me, but she didn't do it. She, she says, no, nothing. there's nothing there. And, and so you, you would think if this were true, that she probably would have mentioned. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it looks like this, this first one that we're talking about that we've got, you know, multiple times where she has an opportunity to speak. We've got this one occurrence that comes to a second or third hand. And, and I often wonder too, Brian, in the course of our lives, it's easy for people sometimes to see what they want to see. I, again, I'm not using this particular accusation as an example, but just to use this as a point to make, that as we go through these nine, these are people that Joseph Smith does have interactions with. They are people that he talks to, and, and some of them spend a great deal of time with him in, in different uh, capacities and such. I just often wonder, for critics... It's easy to latch on to any experience where you look at the interaction that one person has with another and to to 
easily make your own conclusions about what's going on. I mean, even the the account we have here of Eliza Winters is pretty basic. There really isn't a whole lot said of exactly what occurred and what happened. I mean, it it could have even been just an off-the-cuff comment. I know we're, we're even saying that perhaps it's nothing at all, and it's just an absolute blatant false accusation. But even in instances where Joseph does have some interaction with these folks and something is said or done, it's really easy for a critic trying to see the worst in somebody to to paint things in the absolute worst possible light that there is. I mean, do, do you think that happens at all? Um, certainly, that would be a tendency, uh, and and not just in religion, but also in, uh, in politics as well. So, Brian, it looks like the next one on the list that I'm showing is Josiah Stoll's Daughters, and it looks like uh, this was according to a, a Broome County uh, prosecutor, uh, who became involved with Joseph Smith uh, in 1830. Would you mind uh, sharing with us some of the background of, of this case and perhaps why this also really isn't uh, what it seems like on the surface? Well, in 1830, in the Broome County prosecutor uh, brought Joseph up on charges, and they couldn't find any witnesses that would testify against him. And so they called uh, Rhonda and Miriam Stowell, and so far as we have any record, they only reported positive things. But Dan Vogel uh, said that or, or made the assumption that because they called these two women to testify at this trial, that Joseph must have been accused of some impropriety with them. And that's the whole source of it. Um, when I talk about talked about this, I, I really make Dan Vogel the, the, the first person to to make this accusation because all of the accounts that we have exonerate Joseph. But we do know that there were a number of witnesses called. Among them were Josiah, Josiah Stoll's daughters. And we should also observe that Josiah Stoll remained very true to Joseph and the church. So when we look into the the evidences associated with this uh, Broome County 1830 court case, there's really nothing there that's, that's uh, conclusive. It's incredibly ambiguous. And then if we go to the accounts of both the non-member defender and the account from Joseph Smith, both of them uh, exonerate Joseph as being an upstanding and, and having not been guilty of any impropriety. So the question then comes to mind is, and I know Dan's wrote done a lot of work on on trying to examine Joseph Smith and his background. And, and I certainly I would call Dan a critic uh, but I think he does a lot of scholarship in this area. What what gives the leeway for a scholar to, to make that leap? I mean, you're saying there really is essentially nothing before Dan Vogel makes this assumption or conclusion. I mean, where where do we come up with this kind of uh, this kind of leaning? Where do we come up with this kind of conclusion to even make just off of the facts that are there? Well, people have have been observing uh, this before Dan, but Dan actually put into writing uh, the idea that there was testimony against Joseph presented by these two girls. And we uh, we don't know that there was testimony from the two girls, but that it was against Joseph is just not uh, supported. And that's where Dan kind of uh, spun the evidence, if you will. And he and I've talked about that. We've we've exchanged emails. He, he knows, and it's in my book, that, that you really shouldn't say there was negative testimony unless you have evidence of negative testimony. And yet he, right, he goes right. right ahead and does this. And Dan, Dan does this all the time. Dan's, Dan's a very good researcher who's very comfortable spinning the evidence um, and, and presenting little twists, you know, kind of like uh, 
like the man with in the mask who was plunging the knife into the abdomen of the woman. You know, it's all in the storytelling. And, and that's why uh, Dan, though, has done us a, a big favor in that he's provided primary documents for us to use. So when Dan gives his, his uh, you know, version or, or a believer gives their version, we can go to the actual documents. And for that, I think we're all grateful for Dan Vogel's work in, in that respect. Right. It- Right. And the actual documents, I mean, they don't even name the sisters, right? I mean, the sisters, we kind of make the conclusion of who these, these two women are that are asked to testify based on Josiah Stoll's family. But in the, in the actual facts that we have, we don't even have their names. No, do you're, we? you're right. Uh, Bill, good research on, on your part. Um, and I'm, I'm believing Dan who, and, and I verified it that this as well, but I think it was Rhonda and Miriam. But, uh, you know, we don't know that from the testimony. It, the, the references are so scant. Right. So there's very little there to go on. And, and what evidence we do have shows that these two, uh, these two women uh, testified positively on Joseph's behalf and actually were, were a great impetus in, uh, in the trial going no further. So the next one I've got written down is just a certain woman. That's, that's what she goes by. So this, this is the great unknown. Who is this lady and, and what's her situation? What do we know about her? Regarding a certain woman, I think I'm the only person who has ever talked about this episode. Um, but as I went through examining all the evidence that we could find, I found it and I thought we want to be balanced. So let's put it in there. But in 1890, a guy named William Bond from Erie County, Pennsylvania, remembered that Joseph Smith came through as a missionary through his area there, which was uh, close to Kirtland, Ohio, and that he was making uh improper advances to a a woman there and that they convened a a gathering of men who said that essentially they were going to tar and feather him if he continued and so he left town that's the story and i have researched joseph's comings and goings through that area he was through there six times between 1820 1831 i'm sorry five times between 1831 and 1836 in every case, Joseph was not alone. The first time he was with his family and Emma. The second time he was with Newell K. Whitney. The third time Sidney Rigdon and, and others. The fourth time Pat Parley Pratt. Fifth time Hiram Smith. So the, the idea that he could have carried on the way it was de- depicted without others have known of knowing about it is, is just not supported. But if you also look at additional research, um, we learned that that between 1831 and 1833, 122 new members came from that very area. So we're supposed to believe that that Joseph was misbehaving, apparently all by himself, and that it created such a stir that the senior men in the area came together and threatened him to be tarred and feathered. And yet, during that same period, 122 new members were were baptized. So it's so problematic, but I have included it just uh, for completeness. Yeah, I mean, it looks like, as you point out, there there's this large group who is supposed to have chased him out of town, and yet we have no existing testimony from any of them. And then on top of that, as you also pointed out, if Joseph caused some major trouble there where the townsfolk were ready to, to send him out, uh, he seems to keep going back there, doesn't he? He keeps going through there. And it's also interesting that there's no contemporaneous evidence for any problems in the area. The... Uh, this is a, a recollection from 1890. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't couldn't be true because I use late recollections as well. But something that was this egregious, you might have thought somebody would have mentioned it in the newspapers or in a letter or in a journal, none of which has been found to corroborate it. 
Right. So we've got a we've got a case of lots of people suppose supposedly supposed to be involved in this, and yet we've got no existing record from anybody other than Bond. The uh, the next one I've got, and this one is kind of an interesting, I think, story. But the next one here is Nancy or Miranda Nancy Johnson, which is the the daughter of John Johnson, if I'm not mistaken, on the Johnson farm where where Joseph stayed a couple of different times, uh, him and his family uh, spending their time when when they didn't have a home of their own. In this case, I think, if I'm not mistaken, because I live in Sandusky, Ohio, I'm about an hour and 20 minutes west of Kirtland, and so I've been to Kirtland, Ohio numerous times, been to the John Johnson farm, and, and the most famous story we tell there is of the time Joseph was dragged out of his, his bedroom uh, in the middle of the night and tarred and feathered, and I think that ties into this story, if I'm not mistaken. So if you want to run us through maybe the details of this one. Yeah, this is an interesting one that keeps getting retold. Um, what what we know is that Joseph Smith was uh, uh, tarred and feathered in March of 1832, and that they had a doctor with him uh, that was going to castrate Joseph Smith. Um, there's nobody at that time in 1832, none of the people who were involved made any statements that this occurred because of Joseph's involvement with any woman, including Miranda, who was there living in the John Johnson home. Um, but he was tarred and feathered, and most people already know the story. Well, what's interesting is nobody mentions any kind of a relationship or, or anything improper between Joseph and Miranda until 1884. But in 1884, a Church of Christ disciples minister named Clark Braden, and this was a guy who was willing to argue with any other religion, uh, any other representative from any other religion. In fact, he gained a reputation that people didn't want to argue with him because he was so fast and free with his facts that it was very difficult to rebut what he was saying. But in 1884, he went up against RLDS presiding Bishop E.L. Kelly, and was arguing with him about Joseph Smith. And during their debate, it lasted several nights, um, Clark Braden made the accusation that in March of 1832, Joseph Smith was stopping at Mr. Johnson's home in Hiram, Ohio, and was mobbed. The mob was led by Eli Johnson, who blamed Smith for being too intimate with his sister, Marinda. Now, again, this is 1884. It's the first time somebody is accusing Joseph of impropriety with Marinda. And in the years thereafter, Marinda, in a published work, said, I did not see anything improper in Joseph the whole time he was staying there with my family. But this accusation was picked up by no other than Fawn Brody, who gave it even more credence. And that's why I think it gets repeated so much nowadays. I think if Brody would have left it alone, people today wouldn't have really even heard of it. But nobody mentioned this during the interim. Several anti-Mormon uh, books mentioned the mobbing, but nobody mentioned Joseph being mobbed because of something improper with Miranda. So what you've got, again, is just some anti-Mormon, and Clark Braden certainly qualified for that, um, looking at the fact that Joseph was going to be uh, castrated that night. It didn't happen, of course. 
Um, and then I think just drawing the conclusion that some sexual impropriety was involved and then he was willing because he was not so uh, worried about being accurate uh, with making that accusation. If we go to the time, we find that the real reasons, and this is from people who were there and who talked to people who were there, was that they had found the articles dealing with the law of consecration and believed that both Smith and Rigdon, remember, Sidney Rigdon actually got it worse than Joseph did, but they, they right. thought that Joseph and Sidney were going to steal their property and they weren't going to have anything to do with that. Yeah, I do find it interesting that, uh, one, this, this Clark Braden doesn't provide any kind of source for what he's coming up with, and he almost seems to tell the story as if Joseph's just going through town and happens to stop at the Johnsons for a night and has some kind of inappropriate relationship, and, and all of a sudden the mob decides to tar and feather him, when in reality Joseph stayed there for months and months on end, I think on two different occasions. The, the other thing, too, that's interesting, as you pointed out, was that those who were witnesses to this, so, for instance, most people within Mormonism will remember the name Simon's Rider, uh, the brother who, who in a revelation had his name spelled wrong, and, and at least in some small part that played a role in his uh, losing faith and, and leaving the church. But if I'm not mistaken, he leaves behind a, an account of this story, and he never brings up any kind of inappropriate relationship on, on the part of Joseph being the impetus for this, uh, this tar and feathering, right? Correct. And when Simon's Rider died, they, the speaker at his funeral, said, yeah, Simons was briefly associated with the Mormons, but that was long before they were doing polygamy and everything. So, again, the idea that he was aware of anything that was sexually improper is just not supported. Gotcha. The uh, The next one I've got on my list is uh, Vienna Jacques, I think is how... Uh how you pronounce it. But uh, this is kind of an interesting story, too. I wonder if you might uh, run us through this one. Yes. Vienna Jacques, or, or it's also could be pronounced Jake's. Uh, we, we find it, it spelled in Samuel Smith's journal, Jacques, Jacques, but I think Jake's is also a way it could be pronounced. But Vienna was converted and came. She was a wealthy woman. She brought $1,200 to Kirtland, Ohio, and gave it to the prophet. And she stayed a brief period there in Kirtland, and then Joseph uh, sent her to Missouri, where she could uh, have a an inheritance there in Jackson County. And what we find is that a woman who uh, was uh, estranged from the church, her name was Nancy Smith Alexander, um, much later, and we don't know the exact date, one source, uh, Todd Compton, says 1886, but she remembered that Vienna, that she was talking with a domestic in the who had worked in the Smith home, and the domestic had remembered that uh, Joseph was having sex with Vienna, and that Joseph had to go to Emma and give her a revelation in order to get Emma to be okay with the relationship with Vienna. And and this story, again, probably would have died away and because it was written up on a single sheet and we can't even verify who wrote it or when, but it was picked up by the uh, authors of Mormon Enigma and 
they reproduced it there. They don't say it's true, but they reproduce it there. And when you've got all these accusations against Joseph, well, here's one more. Well, yeah, at least one of them is probably true, and maybe it's this one. And so nobody had really taken any time to examine this until Don Bradley and I were trying to figure out the evidence and what the evidence says. But if you create a timeline, we discover that Vienna was in Ohio only two brief periods. And during those periods, the domestic, her name was Polly Beswick, um, we, we don't even know if she was there during the times that we know Vienna was there. But we also discovered that she was there in 1837, and then this Nancy Alexander arrived in 36. So if, if there, was, there was no intersection between Vienna and, and the domestic Polly Beswick and Nancy Alexander, they all were there at different time periods. But if you look at the specifics of what was supposed to have happened, it just it, it doesn't have any resemblance to uh, things that are, are plausible to have occurred. The idea that Joseph was practicing polygamy with Emma's permission at that point in time is just ridiculous. There's no way Emma would have put up with it. The idea that Joseph would have come up with a, a revelation on the topic for Emma at that point is certainly undocumented. And it's unlikely from what we do know that Emma would have been receptive to a a revelation at that time. So there's just all kinds of problems with the uh, the whole Vienna uh, Jake's story uh, when you start looking at the actual evidence that uh, that uh, people have been referring to. Right. So that so that all three of these individuals aren't in the same place at the same time, which is really what it takes for this all to come together. And uh, and then on top of that, even with the the two of them, uh, Vienna and the domestic servant, and even adding in. Uh, Mrs. Alexander, that essentially there's just too much happening too quick. I know in your article, uh, Brian, you wrote something along the lines of in the span of three or four months in early 1833, uh, Joseph would have needed to confirm uh, Vienna's conversion when she arrived in Kirtland, baptize her, convince her of the appropriateness of polygamy, and immediately marry her, although the form that such a ceiling would take is not known. It just seems like a lot would have to kind of come together really quickly. And, and as you're pointing out too, there's just not a lot to go on uh, with this. I know in the beginning of this this one, you talked a little bit about the original documentation talks about a Mrs. Warner Alexander, which which you've kind of figured out is Nancy Maria Smith, uh, daughter of William Smith, not a relation to Joseph, and a Lydia Calkins. And essentially she marries a, a Justin Alexander and because her name's Nancy, obviously she takes her husband's last name, and so she's Nancy Alexander. Where does the Warner come from? Well, the the one document that we've been able to find, and it was the one that the authors of Mormon Enigma, and, and that would be Linda King Newell and Valine Avery, and, and I don't want to, to, to say anything negative about them. They did an incredible job with the evidence, and I'm, but I'm working right from their uh, files, which are now available up at the University of Utah, and there is a signature at the bottom of a typed page, and, and it looks like Mrs. Warner Alexander, but if you know her name's Nancy, you can kind of see where Warner is actually Nancy, but they didn't know that when they were first researching it. This is something that Don Bradley and I were able to discern. And so the name Warner is, is really a misrepresentation of Nancy, and, and it's from this signature on this document that we do not have any uh, idea of where it came from or when. Right, and that even goes back to the last one we talked about, Nancy Miranda Johnson. If I'm not mistaken, the the original uh, 
documentation of, of this accusation comes from the her uncle, if not if I'm not mistaken, Nancy Myrna Johnson's uncle is tied into this somehow. And yet, when authors tend to write books, for instance, Fawn Brody, uh, her her book No Man Knows My History, she kind of takes this route that it's one of the Johnson boys, and so it's his, it's their sister that's having this occur against her. It, it just seems like you and Don have done a wonderful job of sorting through all the information and really pinning down what the facts are, whereas those who've gone before, and again, as you point out, they've they've made huge strides in helping us to have some of these original documents and to understand some of the storylines that are going on and, and the events and the order that they occurred. But in some ways, too, they're, they're missing a few important details. It, it kind of seems important, whether it's Nancy's brother or whether it's her uncle, and how that ties into the story, right? Well, yeah, we can easily transform a trauma surgeon trying to save a life into a murderer if we just don't have all of the details. And, and, and yet in this case, I think Nancy uh, or Warner Alexander, she clearly was antagonistic. And the story that she picked up, so this is a third-hand story, just doesn't fit any of the facts from what we know. And, and we're going to talk about Fanny Alger, but the whole idea that Joseph could have been sexually involved with Vienna when Emma put up such a, a resistance to a, a actual plural marriage to Fanny Alger is just not uh, consistent. I mean, you, we just wouldn't find that to be a real probable story. And, and we do have uh, Nancy Alexander and her husband, who were both members at one time, they leave the church. But as you pointed out, it appears that uh, the, the servant in the home remained an active member of the church throughout her life, and, and yet we have no further discussion of these of this experience. We have no other information to go on. It just seems like in each of these cases that we talk about, if if what happened or what was purported to happen actually did, you would you would almost think you'd at least have more rumblings going around the town and more things ending up in writing, especially among a group of, of people who tend to document everything. Well, and it's a good point. And Fanny Alger, who we will talk about, is a good example. This really did happen, we think. We have 19 different documents that refer to it, even though there were seriously only a handful or two of people who actually knew what happened. But rumors were started, and then they expanded. And so we were able to find many references. This this idea of, of Joseph and Vienna Jakes is a single document. We can't trace the... Uh, we have no no provenance of the thing at all, and we have nothing, no rumors or, or any additional evidence to support that there was anything that had happened at all. So certainly secret things do occur in history, but even the secret of Fanny Alger uh, episode generated 19 documents. So uh, again, it, it, uh, people can make their own judgment by looking at the evidence, but to me, this is another uh, non, non-issue for Joseph. The uh, the next one I've got, which as I look at the list, and, and again, I would set Fanny Elgar off to the side as a whole different circumstance. But as I look at the list of the nine that I've got, and again, we'll talk about the two, that, the other ones that you've got uh, that have been added to this list. But of the nine that I'm looking at, the Nancy Miranda Johnson one sticks out to, to me as one that I've read about. Um, it's one I've come across as I've read what critics have written about the church. But another one that I've read quite a bit about is the next one we're going to talk about, which is Sidney Rigdon's daughters, uh, Nancy and Athalia. And I find this one interesting only because in a biography that I read about Sidney Rigdon, there was a whole chapter dedicated to what this author drew as the conclusion that Joseph Smith had had acted inappropriately with uh, with Nancy. And so I wanted to give you a chance to, to kind of set this one up as well. Well, the uh, book that you're talking about was, was written by Richard S. Van Wagner. 
And uh, it, it's really a lot of spin. I mean, he was an unbeliever, and, and that doesn't mean what he's writing is unreliable, but he, he, he did not hesitate to, to take the evidence and interpret it in the absolutely most negative way it could possibly be interpreted. And this is exactly why uh, what has happened here. Um, what, what we know is that Nancy and Athalia were in Kirtland, Ohio, at the same time Joseph was. And they later interviewed a gentleman. His name was uh, William S. Smith. And again, this is not a relation to to William Smith, the prophet's brother. And I, we don't think it's the William Smith, the father of Nancy Maria Ale- Smith Alexander. Um, so, and I, and I was going to ask you about that too, Brian, because I saw those two William Smiths, and I thought, uh oh, is this the same guy who's who's involved in two different accusations? Um, you know, it might be, but but Don and I didn't think it was. We tried to dis- discern for sure, and we we weren't able to tell. But it, you know, Smith was a real common name. William was very common. Sure. We don't think that those are the same people. That that is the father of of Nancy Alexander or the uh, the uh, witness in this case. But during the questioning um, by the RLDS presiding bishop E.L. Kelly, what we find is that William S. Smith talks about um, Athalia uh, because Athalia was the same age as uh, as William Smith was, and so he knew about Athalia. And but the the questioner asks about Nancy as well. Well, he doesn't say anything negative about about Joseph with Nancy or Athalia. It's just that the witness mentions that they were there. And I, I have all of this, I think, in the article, but it's also recounted in my book. But the problem that occurs is that Richard S. Van Wagner, in his book entitled Sidney Rigdon, A Portrait of Religious Excess, he, he says this, he says, quote, gossip in Ohio's Western Reserve linked Smith to Athalia and Nancy Rigdon, Sidney's 16 and 15-year-old daughters, end of quote. Now, that's Van Wagner's words, that there was gossip linking Joseph Smith to Athalia and Nancy. Well, the gossip is not gossip at all. This this uh, account where they're interviewing William S. Smith says nothing negative about Joseph with either Nancy or Athalia. In fact, Nancy is mentioned only because the questioner asks about Nancy. Um, he says, how old was Nancy Rigdon at the time? And William Smith says, I don't know. I went to school with Athalia. So there's absolutely nothing here to uh, of improper accusation or anything, but we, we give it to, to Richard Van Wagner, whose book Mormon Polygamy, A History, uh, reflects the same biases, and he's willing to say, well, there was gossip. Well, there's no evidence of gossip, and there's certainly no gossip linking Joseph Smith to Athalia and Nancy, but Van Wagner's willing to, to stretch that evidence to make that you know trauma surgeon look like a murderer, when in fact the evidence is not there to support it. And And now, with that said, let me say that in Nauvoo, several years later, Nancy Rigdon was proposed to by Joseph to become his plural wife. And that's a whole different story. But it, it isn't anything that, that was gossip on the Western Reserve as represented by Richard S. Van Wagner. In the, and I want to maybe fast forward to the, the Nauvoo proposal. We know, if I'm not mistaken, correct me, but Nancy rejects that, correct? And, and is there any documentation of Sidney Rigdon being frustrated or upset with that experience? Do we, do we know of that at, at all? I know I'm asking you a question that, that isn't necessarily titled around the subject we're talking about, but, but I think maybe it's important to at least tie in that, that future event that happens. Well, to give you the, I'll try to give you the quick version. Joseph Smith 
I think, is trying to introduce plural marriage to Sidney Rigdon. Sidney Rigdon is a counselor in the First Presidency. He has a feeling that Nancy Rigdon would accept a, a plural marriage proposal to him, and so he approaches her. She turns him down flat. It's a huge miscalculation on Joseph Smith's part. And so Joseph tries to, to do a little um, damage control. And the whole episode is, is pretty much hushed up. Um, it's hushed up by Joseph going over there. They talk about it. And Sidney is involved at this point. Um, but they're, they're able to make it, to keep it just within more or less the family. Well, somehow Nancy's boyfriend, Francis Higby, hears about it and he tells John C. Bennett. So several months go by and then Bennett hears about it. And when he's kicked out of the church, he then publishes the episode and makes accusations about it. So then it suddenly becomes an, an issue all over again. And we don't have Nancy actually saying anything negative about Joseph, but people that Nancy apparently told, like like uh, Higby and then John Bennett, make all kinds of negative accusations about it in Nauvoo. But it, it really was a, a proposal for a plural marriage which was turned down, and it would have died away had it not become picked up by John Bennett. Yeah, I find that interesting, and I also see in your article that, that Nancy Rigdon even had a chance in 1884 to speak about polygamy and its origin, and she makes the comment that I never heard of such a thing in Kirtland as sealing. I heard about this first, about the year 1842, which which goes right along with the evidence that we're pointing at, that there there really is no... No, no legs at all to this uh, to this prior accusation. Yeah, thank you for for adding that quotation. It, it's it's very clear that Van Wagner go, was going way beyond the evidence, and of course, spinning it in a negative way. What I always find interesting too, and, and I think we do this sometimes as Latter Day Saints, and the critics do it as well. But it's something that I've been quite pleased as I've looked through your work, Brian. Which is, it's easy just to throw out the apologetic information, and it's easy to just throw out the critical information. But to really get at the truth, you have to lay out both sides, and you have to show what what was said, what was accused, what was the evidence, what did people say later on, what was written in journals, uh, the people that the accusations were against, what did they say later on in life. And I think you've done a beautiful job of just putting all the information out there and letting people, as they read it, uh, make up their own mind. Well, I appreciate that. You know, we're a year and a half out since my books were published, and certainly there have been a lot of critics. But one of the criticisms that I have yet to hear is that I left something out, and that means anything negative or anything positive. And if you think about that, if you have these three volumes and they contain a reference or, quote, a, a citation, uh, a transcript of every known document dealing with plural marriage, that means that if Joseph did something that was improper, it's going to be in my books. And I again, I nobody's accused me of leaving out something that was negative because I didn't like it or because, you know, I, I didn't think it was credible. I, I've left all those things in there. And this is why I have two chapters talking about this very evidence. I don't think it's credible, but we're, but we're analyzing it as if it could have been. And when we analyze it and, and, and contextualize it, none of these seem to hold up. And, and so what I'm finding now today, Bill, is that people still criticize my books, but they aren't saying that my books are bad because I didn't include this evidence that shows my conclusion is wrong. What they're saying now is they use labels. They say Brian Hales is an apologist, therefore we could ignore Brian Hales and his, his conclusions. And I can live with that because that, that's a lot better than them saying that I left out evidence that, that contradicts it and is more credible. That would make me feel very, very bad. But, but those who don't believe have got to have something to say against these things. And so they're labeling me an apologist and, and trying to dismiss my interpretations that way. And I can live with that. 
Gotcha, gotcha. The uh, the next one on the list is Lucinda Pendleton Harris, and uh, go ahead and walk us through uh, this accusation. Um, Lucinda Pendleton Harris is a very complicated um, story, and I'll have to see if I can can just do a, a quick version of it here. Um, there is some evidence from credible sources that Joseph Smith married her in 1838. Uh, there's other evidence that she became a plural wife in 1842 or so, but there's no dates for any of this. Um, the thing that makes it problematic is that in an 1886 publication by a guy named Wilhelm Weil, that's a pseudonym, but he was an arch anti-Mormon. He was willing to publish anything that was negative about the Mormons, and if it didn't happen to be true, well, that didn't seem to bother him too much. But he... Uh, was interviewing Sarah Pratt, according to the book. And in that, uh, Sarah Pratt um, reported that Joseph Smith had approached her, probably talking to her about being sealed to him in a plural marriage. And, and we, there's a whole background. Sarah was sexually involved with John C. Bennett at the time, and Joseph was intervening to try to get Sarah away from, from Bennett and talk to her about eternal marriage. But what we find is that Sarah was quoted as saying, that after hearing about this, Mrs. Harrett was a married lady, very great friend of mine. When Joseph had made his dastardly attempt on me, I went to Mrs. Harris to unbosom my grief to her. And to my utter astonishment, she said, laughing heartily, how foolish you are. I don't see anything so horrible. Why, I am his mistress since four years. And so if you count back four years from this time, it puts us to 1837. This would have had to have occurred in early 1841. And, and so the allegation is that Joseph was having sexual relations or was married to Lucinda Pendleton Harris um, since 1837. And uh, there's just a lot of problems with the idea that Joseph would have entered into a plural marriage at that time. He was being accused by Oliver Cowdery of impropriety with Fanny Alger at the time. Uh, and there's just nothing else to support it um, other than one uh, report from a late convert who said that she had heard that Joseph was sealed to Lucinda prior to Nauvoo. The problem with that testimony is that Eliza R. Snow did not corroborate it, even though I believe there's no chance she wouldn't have heard of it. So we kind of have two witnesses, Eliza indicating no, and another voice who is a late convert saying yes. So we really do have a lot of, of, of accusations and possibilities on this one. Um, but amidst, amidst all of the confusion, I, I don't think this is by any means a solid report of sexual impropriety against Joseph. But if you go to my book, and, and it's abbreviated some in the article that you have, you can get all the evidences there on both sides of the issue. And uh, quite honestly, on my list of, of plural wives of Joseph Smith, I list Lucinda. But if I were asked, which one do you think is the, the least likely to have actually been married to him? It would be Lucinda Pendleton. I don't think there were sexual relations between her and Joseph uh, for, for a variety of reasons. And I don't think there's some indication she wouldn't even qualify as a plural wife. Excellent. Brian, we're uh, talking today with Brian Hales, author of Joseph Smith's Polygamy, a, a multi-volume set, just a, a wonderful work in addition to uh, the church history and to scholarship within Mormonism. Brian, in this one that we're talking about uh, with uh, with Lucinda, it I know that Andrew Jensen, who was uh, an assistant church historian at one time, was kind of back and forth himself on whether this one really belonged. And I do find it interesting that the accusation comes from Sarah Pratt, who 
if I'm not mistaken, and correct me, I mean, was she was she always in the church? Was she faithful? Or did she fall away from the church? Sarah Pratt uh, was excommunicated. Um, she she was the wife of Orson Pratt, uh, and they married in the 1830s. They met as as Orson was a Mormon missionary, and and she was baptized. They were later married, but then he went on a mission with the twelve to in 1840s 1841. And uh, in the meantime, we've got very good evidence that Sarah was sexually involved with John C. Bennett. And then she, uh, this ends, and Joseph tried to intervene. Uh, then she was somewhat negative towards Joseph, but she did accompany Orson on a mission later um, after Joseph's death. But then um, Orson had other wives, and Sarah wasn't seeing a lot of Orson, so she apostatized was very anti-Mormon and was interviewed in this same book saying things were clearly just plain inaccuracies uh, regarding polygamy in Nauvoo. So as a witness, she's not exactly the most credible. Um, but, but again, I include all of her statements that are important in, in, the, uh, in my articles and in the book, just so the, the readers will see what she had to say. Right. And I did see where it looks like John C. Bennett provided housing for her and then moved in. Uh, and lived in that house with with her and, and their children, uh, Orson Pratt's children, for a short time. Uh, certainly there is there is one witness who is not always reliable either, but that she said that's exactly what happened. Gotcha, gotcha. The, uh, I'm just looking here. The next one that I've got listed is uh, Prescindia Huntington uh, Buell, which, which I find to be kind of funny. And, and maybe just I can kind of just cut to the end of this one. There was great debate back and forth. I just found your article. Uh, this was an amusing story of Fawn Brody being adamant that after looking at pictures of, uh, of Prescindia's son, uh, children, that there was no doubt that these were Joseph, that one of them was Joseph's kid. And I think she made the the offhand comment that if if this wasn't one of Joseph's kids, then uh, then she wasn't a member of her family. That it was that clear cut. And I I thought it was neat to get to the conclusion, which was that um, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but he's the DNA guy with the church. Uh, Ugo Perego is that is that his name? Okay, I don't I don't want to chop it up to pieces, but he gets he does DNA research on as much of of these proposed uh, children of Joseph Smith as, as we can possibly get at. And, and he's found it pretty clear cut that, that this isn't the case with this one. I, I just found the story to be funny that Fawn almost kind of staked her reputation on this and, and science prevails. Yeah. And if you read the section in my book, it's rather lengthy because Don Bradley and I did a lot of sleuthing and tried to figure out what's going on. In the meantime, you, Hugo Perigo, a, a good friend, a good guy, was doing DNA testing. And so despite all the extra arguments to show how implausible Fawn Brody's reconstruction was, I mean, he, as you said, just cut right to the quick and showed, no, he, neither of these boys are Joseph's children. Uh, let's just move on. And, and so we, we honestly don't need to spend too much time with this. But if people want to understand the, the historical problems besides uh, the genetic problems, they can read that part in my book. And so sometimes maybe a photograph is not worth a thousand words. No, and, and Fawn Brody did not provide um, all of the photographs we would have liked. We would have liked to have seen photographs of uh, the the boy's actual father to see how similar they were. She she really stacked the deck to make it look like these, these boys were Joseph's offspring. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, the This ends the nine that I've got, and so I wanted to turn some time over to you to maybe share the other two that need to be part of this list. 
and uh, and then we can take up Fanny Alger for a few minutes. Okay. Uh, probably there's another one talking about Miranda Nancy Johnson, um, a guy named William Hall, who was uh, a former member of the church, wrote an expose uh and accused Joseph of being involved with Miranda uh, later on. And it, it really doesn't have a lot of credibility. Um, I, I don't know that we need to spend a lot of time with this one, Bill. It, it doesn't. I, I include everything because I don't want anyone to say, well, Brian, you left out, fill in the blank, um, try to include it all. One that is interesting and worth talking about, though, is an accusation by a guy named Benjamin Winchester. Now, Benjamin Winchester uh, made had a lot of negative things to say about Joseph, uh, even while Joseph was alive. He accused Joseph of, of, uh, of adultery, even while Joseph was living. Um, and the woman involved was, a, he calls her a Miss Smith, saying that Joseph came out to Philadelphia and met Miss Smith, got her pregnant and traveled with her. And then she delivered a child that was Joseph's child. And uh, the Miss Smith turns out to be Hannah DuBose, who uh, Joseph did meet and know, and uh, they they were acquaintances. So Hannah moved to Nauvoo, where she married Philo Dibble, and but and they did have a child together. But the child could not have been Joseph's, based upon the the chronology and the geography uh, that was involved. Um, if we look at when the child was born, it wasn't or was conceived. It wasn't while Joseph was in Philadelphia. It was conceived substantially later. And so the story just falls apart on, on numerous observations that are easily documented. Um, and, and there's actually more than one person who tries to put Joseph with Hannah DuBose. Some people even list Hannah as a plural wife. Again, the evidence is, is not good. And the, the problems with Winchester's claims are that they, they're just contradicted by so many other um, evidences. So those would be the other two. And, and like I say, we could jump into more detail if you want. But, but I really think uh, the, I only included them to be complete. And because some anti-Mormons continue to to repeat them, if you just go and look at the evidence, um, I don't think any objective person was going to think that this is this is uh, very uh, compelling evidence at all. Right, right. And I will link uh, Brian both uh, your article, your website, as well as a uh, a link to your books with this episode, so that people can, if they want to examine any of these cases in greater detail, along with all the other, all the other details of, of polygamy as it occurred in you know Nauvoo and after, uh, that they can can check that out. Brian, so before we get into to Fanny Elger, which was the final one that I wanted to talk to you about, would you mind maybe just giving us a, a quick synopsis kind of of the timeline that uh, that these accusations come out so that we can kind of understand um, um, essentially, you know, how far, few and far apart these are? Well, thank you, Bill. Um, as I mentioned when we started, the... Uh the timeline is important because Eliza Winters, that single statement at the back of Edie Howe's book, was published in 1834. It's the only published allegation accusing Joseph of sexual impropriety prior to, to Nauvoo in 1842 when John Bennett was making all of his over-the-top accusations. But the Josiah Stoll Daughters accusation was first leveled in 2002. A certain woman with William Bond was first leveled in 1890, even though it allegedly occurred in 1829. 
the first accusation regarding Miranda Nancy Johnson that allegedly occurred in 1832 was not voiced until 1884. The Vienna Jakes allegation, which allegedly occurred in 1833, was not mentioned until 1886. And then we have Athalia and Nancy Rigdon. That first mentioned in 1994, that Lucinda Pendleton-Harris was 1885, Tercinda Huntington-Buell was 1860, Miranda Johnson, the second one, was 1852. So now we're getting a little closer, but that was still 13 years late. And then the Miss Smith or the uh, Hannah Du Bois was 1900, even though that allegedly occurred in 1839. So what we're finding is really a lot of very energetic anti-Mormons going back through the, and uh, sifting through the historical record, I think, to, to make these allegations. The only other one that, that was made during Joseph's lifetime dealt with Fanny Alger, and that is the one that we talked about where Oliver Cowdery wrote in a private letter that the relationship was a dirty, nasty, filthy scrape. Other than those two, there is just no evidence that Joseph had a, a reputation as a womanizer or as a libertine in the 1830s. And yet we have anti-Mormons saying, oh, yeah, this was the most common thing that Joseph was accused of doing during the 1830s. And that is just uh, pure fiction. It is just not documentable and is just not true so far as the record is concerned. And, and that's beautiful. And I appreciate that uh, because I think it's important to realize how little is is a, is out there that we have as far as being written or uh, some understanding of what was going on at the time in the time that these these accusations supposedly occurred and everything coming so late uh, should at least cause us to be concerned and be weary as we as we search through the sources. But I want to now talk just for a few minutes about Fanny Elger and, Elger, and I know that we can talk about her probably for another hour. I don't want to do that. I don't want to take up your day doing that. But I do have some specific questions for you on this one. I realize this case is different than the other 11 that we talked about, and in that there's enough sources there to know that something is going on. And I just want to ask you, you know, in terms of being a uh, an inappropriate sexual relationship, in terms of being a polygamous marriage, in terms of being an eternal ceiling, where do you fall on this? Uh, where do you come down on this in regards to the evidence? Uh, there... There is evidence on both sides of this issue, and if, I, I should mention here, Bill, and I should have mentioned earlier that we have a website. It's josephsmithspolygamy.org, and if you go there, um, you'll find under the FAQs, and they, there is a section on Fanny Alger, and in that I talk about all of the evidences that we've been able to find, and I acknowledge that some of these evidences actually support that this was an adulterous relationship. But I also show that a lot of the evidences show that it was a plural marriage. And there's a chart right there. Um, and again, it's, it's josephsmithspolygamy.org uh, slash, uh, it's, it's under the frequently asked questions under Fanny Alger. But uh, show the the evidence suggesting that this was adultery is that both Oliver Cowdery and Emma Smith knew about the relationship. I believe that they knew that a marriage ceremony was performed, and they both rejected that ceremony as being legitimate. Other than that, you've just got some rumors about some impropriety there to support the idea of adultery. But on the other side, we have um, the Mosiah Hancock statement describing how his father, Levi Hancock, uh, performed a marriage ceremony 
for between Joseph and Fanny. And, and this is remarkable because this document was penned late. It's a late account, but nobody was accusing Joseph of having committed adultery with Fanny. This isn't like Mosiah was trying to defend Joseph. This is just part of a very long narrative where he describes what happens. But then also we're indebted to Don Bradley for his work uh, with the Andrew Jensen papers. And in that collection, it's the first document, we find that Eliza R. Snow was writing down in her own hand uh, the wives of Joseph Smith, and she records Fanny's name. And you might think, well, that's not that big of a deal, but it is because Eliza was there. Eliza was well acquainted with Fanny. She knew what was going on. And for her to call Fanny a plural wife of Joseph Smith is a new evidence that nobody had prior to Don making this discovery. And I think it's very significant. But what we also find is that Fanny went to live with the Webb family and everything that they said and, and they did, their actions supports it was a marriage. Also, the Alger family, the Fanny's own parents and all, continued to believe in Joseph Smith. And there are other evidences support that this was indeed a plural marriage. So on that point, people can look at the evidence. If you simply go to my website, you will find that, that the evidence is all there. You can link to the actual documents or it's, it's Appendix D in Volume 2 of Joseph Smith's Polygamy, History and Theology and look at it. But those who want to say that it, it was just adultery are ignoring a great deal of evidence. Gotcha. And that it is uh, pretty incredible putting all this together. The other thing I thought was neat was uh, Don Bradley and your discovery that rather than saying that this was an affair was catching it, that that was actually not the original wording, that it was a, a, called a scrape instead. And my only question would be, and I, and I know I think I've heard you answer this question before, but I just want to kind of hit on it here. Does the word scrape in that day and age have any different meaning than what a fair would have to us today? Or is it essentially the same thing? Well, and, and what you're referring to, Bill, is that Don was looking at the, the copybook. Um, Joseph, William, I'm sorry, Oliver Cowdery wrote a letter to Joseph Smith, and in the letter he called his relationship with Joseph, with Fanny, Joseph and Fanny, as a dirty, nasty, filthy scrape. And then that letter was was copied into a letter book. Um, I'm leaving a little bit out here, but, but in the letter book, somebody has written over the word scrape to the word affair. Now, the word scrape and the word affair in that day and age did not carry any sexual connotation. But what's happened over the last 170 years is the word affair today is commonly used to mean that someone is having a sexual relationship with a non-spouse. And so over the, the, the words actually have transformed. Scrape doesn't carry that meaning today, and it didn't back then. But today, affair carries that meaning, but back then it didn't. Now, to be honest with you, Bill, I don't think it's a very big deal. I, I include the discussion in my books and in the article because I think it's really cool that Don Bradley could figure this out. I think he, sh he deserves kudos for being a, a great uh, Sherlock Holmes kind of, of investigator. But as far as whether it really means a great deal in the big picture, I don't think that it does. But it's a nice it's a nice observation. What it does do, though, is it will separate those people in the future who refer to this quotation, because those who want to portray Joseph negatively or those who haven't done enough research to realize that the original word was scrape are going to continue to use the word affair, whereby the good scholars are going to use the word scrape and perhaps note that there is an override or something. 
something. But nobody's going to be able to call it a dirty, nasty, filthy affair and be, be considered to be a good scholar in the future. We'll be able to determine their motives to, uh, by how they deal with this quotation. Gotcha. Good point. And I want to, I know the critics, when they talk about Fanny Elger, there's the story that's presented to me. When I, when I used to read critical works, before I joined the church, I read uh, No Man Knows My History, and, and I've spent a lot of time reading uh, anti-Mormon material. And the story that sometimes gets put across is that Emma is looking into the barn and she sees Joseph and, and uh, Fanny having uh, some type of intimate relationship and it's almost like this is clear cut. This is, you know, this is what Emma tells us. This is what we've got. And we're, we're absolutely certain that this is what she's saying. Is it that clear cut? Um, actually, what we're told is that Emma witnessed the whole transaction, I believe, are the words. And, and we're not sure it is a transaction, the marriage ceremony, or is it some kind of just uh, something less than sexual relations? We don't know. Um, to be safe, um, in my works, I just say, yeah, they, she probably caught him together and maybe they were having sex. We don't know for sure. But I, I don't want people to criticize me for trying to, to soft sell, you know, the evidence. But the evidence doesn't tell us that it's sex. It, it could have been something else like the marriage ceremony. But if I could go back in time and give evidence, give advice to Joseph Smith, I would probably tell him, among other things, Joseph, don't marry Fanny Alger without telling Emma. It's going to turn out really bad and, and it's going to look really bad 170, 180 years later. So that would be some advice that I would I would give to Joseph because he probably thought that, that because the angel appeared in 1834 telling him, we want you to restore this, Joseph. So he goes off and, and, and has this marriage with, with Fanny without telling Emma. It's clear she didn't know. And and then Emma discovers it, which was inevitable. And, you know, in that small vicinity, it's going to happen sooner or later. And and then trying to convince Emma that this was a legitimate plural marriage because of the angel's um, admonition, you know, was just too hard of a sell. Joseph ironically calls for Oliver to come and help him with it. He tells Oliver what happened and Oliver sides with Emma and doesn't believe that it was a legitimate marriage either. So Joseph is really in a pickle, and uh, he eventually gets out of it, by, and, and Emma forgives him. I'm not sure Oliver ever did forgive him. This was, this was a big deal for Oliver in driving a wedge between them, I think. Which leads me to my, I guess, my final question, which is in this, in this ordeal with Fanny, it, it comes off as, you know, if Levi is performing the sealing, or if it was his, I'm sorry, if it was his father was performing the sealing. We have people who, at the time of Fanny, are obviously being instructed in in polygamous marriages and perhaps uh, in sealings. But for some reason, Oliver seems to be on the outside looking in, which to to the first, you know, the person on the surface reading of all of this comes the grasp that Oliver Cowdery is Joseph Smith's right hand man, and it seems very odd and strange. To, to have Oliver kind of finding out about it this way, whereas other members of the church seem to be more in the know, do we know any more about what's going on with Joseph and Oliver, why Oliver seems to be unaware of this issue, why he's kind of coming into this late, and, and obviously taking Emma's side uh, seems to tell us a lot about how he felt about all of this. What do we know about why Oliver seem to really struggle with this whole experience? Well, it's an excellent question, Bill, because there are some people who who say that Oliver was a polygamist in the early 1830s, even before Joseph. And 
Brigham Young and George Q. Cannon, I think, were the two. Maybe it's Joseph S. Smith in, in 1867 and beyond made these accusations against Oliver. Oliver was dead. Joseph was dead. Um, these men were not there. Uh, we can show that. And yet they're making these accusations. There's a whole backstory as to why they did this. Um, but there are people who have said that Oliver ran too fast or that he was a polygamist during this era. And I don't see it. And I've written an article on it and I discuss it in a chapter in the book. Um, but I don't see the evidence. Um, there were some problems between Joseph and Oliver besides this event with with Alger, Fanny Alger. And all of the details are not known. We don't exactly know what's going Going on, but if we try to figure out when jo Oliver Cowdery might have practiced polygamy, there's just no real good window of opportunity for him to have done so, especially if he did it without Joseph's mispermission, which he would have done. Joseph wasn't authorizing them at that time, that, so far as any evidence that we have. So the, this would have been something new to Oliver. I think Joseph probably knew from just conversations with Oliver about religious things in general that Oliver was not receptive to the restoration of polygamy. And then in 1834, the angel appears and tells Joseph alone, look, we want you to do this, Joseph. And so Joseph is caught between an angel and and, a, and his wife and his, his uh, counselor, associate president, Oliver Cowdery, who he knows neither of which are going to accept it, so he jumps, and then as as he's trying to uh, take care of the problems that it's caused, that it causes, he he finds himself struggling uh, mightily. Gotcha. And and I would say this in my own mind, having Oliver be such a uh, an opponent of of this experience of him putting his foot down and saying this was inappropriate, actually for me helps strengthen my testimony only because the critic in order to make this to make Joseph a fraud and make the whole restoration uh, one in, you know imposterous thing after another you either have to have Oliver Cowdery be in on it or you have to have him be be completely un, you know unattached to it in and assembly uh, being taken for the ride along with everybody else but unfortunately you have for the critic, of course. Unfortunately, you have Oliver Cowdery who shares in many of these wonderful spiritual experiences where he says he's seen angels both in the Kirtland Temple, uh, priesthood being restored, as well as being a witness to the plates, which seems pretty preposterous to say he's not, you know, he's not uh, along for the ride with Joseph, that he's that he's not uh, in collaboration with him. Um, the other side of the coin is that he has this putting his foot down and saying that this experience is completely wrong and, and not going to go along with it. Essentially, you have Oliver on both ends of the spectrum. And so for the critic, the only you really can't make it work. The only way you can make it work is to say that Oliver really was part of those experiences, but that for this, uh, for this relationship with Fanny, it, uh, it crossed the line of his sensitivities, and, uh, and he was extremely frustrated by it. And really, the only way to walk away from looking at Oliver and the way he approached different experiences in his life is to say that the restoration is true and that Oliver was really just being as honest and forthright in each of these experiences as he knew to be. I think you're bringing up some very excellent points. And I've said this many times that Fawn Brody, and I could list even other writers who are still living, but I won't, but that they have done a, a real hatchet job on Joseph Smith when it comes to plural marriage. But but what I say also is they've done even a bigger hatchet job on the people around Joseph because they've either got to be, like you said, co-conspirators co in a deception that they are well aware of is a deception, or they have to be so doggone dumb and in, in discerning that they can't figure out that Joseph is just taking 
taking them for a ride. And these people were just as skeptical as you and me, and they were watching him as close as they possibly could have. So it is it, it is a difficult sell. And Oliver Cowdery, who was willing to confront Joseph over this issue, shows he wasn't a co-conspirator, which then adds credibility to his statements that he did see angels and it did receive the priesthood. And then later um, in the Kirtland Temple that he was uh, that he saw the the angels that were reported there. So excellent point. So just to wrap up, uh, where can people find your book, uh, Brian? Where's the best places to pick it up? Uh, Amazon is probably the best. It's, it is available at DeseretBook.com. It's available at Benchmark Books. Um, Greg Coford Books also carries it. But uh, any of those, you can pick up uh, copies of it. We, we I do know they ran another 200 uh, copies uh, or sets. We ran 1,100 sets and, and ran out of Volume 1 uh, several months ago. And I know they, they're planning to publish another 200. So uh, those are back in stock, which makes me happy. Wonderful. And I know uh, Greg Coford and uh, Greg Coford Books have been a, a huge supporter of this podcast by uh, setting us up with, with different authors to speak to. And so I would certainly uh, invite my listeners to, to support uh, what they do and, and to support you, Brian, by taking a look at the books you've written. Again, I'll link your website, uh, but give us the, the URL address again of that one more it's, time. It's easy. It's josephsmithspolygamy.org. And there's no apostrophe in Joseph Smith's, but it's all one word, josephsmithspolygamy.org. And uh, my wife and I have, have she has a, a master's degree in professional writing. She's edited everything. We had a professional webmaster help us out. Um, and we've tried to upload all the information is there. We've, we, there's nothing that we've left out. There are, of course, shorter versions uh, than what we have in the book. But uh, there's a lot of good information. And, and hopefully the spinmeisters will have to stop spinning because the, uh, the actual documents and facts are, are going to be available to those who want to find them. Wonderful. Thank you, Brian, for being on the podcast today. Say what they will now you say